listening to right where you are sitting now. Hello there, and welcome to episode 47 of Sitting Now Radio. I almost said Coincidence Control Network again. I'm still not back in the th- back in the flow yet, Kim. Words are tricky, aren't they? Which word to use, when to when to use it, how to say it. Exactly. It's always the a bit sort of thing we've almost mastered after six years of uh, six years of doing it. Yeah, can't believe we're six years old. And yet we've only done 46. No, so I just said 46. No, this is episode 47. God, I'm an idiot. Anyway, yeah, 47 episodes in and we still can't speak. And uh, we've only done 47 episodes in six years, which isn't good. But we've done lots of other podcasts, so we've kind of made up for it. I and think. we're really good at other things, too. Yeah. That we um, don't talk about. Yeah, sporty things and, and unnameable things. I'm very, I'm an extremely sociable person who has a number of charitable interests, for instance. Indeed. Anyway, adverts. Project Archivist, the podcast that talks about the weird, the wonderful, and the strange. Join us every week as your hosts, Rojan and Lobo, take a different look at the world around us through guest interviews, discussion, or taking a look at the week's weirdest news. Find us at www.projectarchivist.com, on iTunes in the podcast section, or on the Stitcher Android app. Ooh, I love a good advert. What about you, Kim? Uh, but that was the best set of adverts yet, even though they were the same as last week's. I feel somehow that they gave, they had a little bit of edge. Mm-hmm. Well, you're only saying that because you're rolling solo today. This is very much your show today. Um, Kim's actually rolling solo. He's uh, he's he's taking the reins out of my uh, dead hands, and he's going to be interviewing solo today without the aid of me. I'll be there in the background, sort of laughing at his mistakes. But uh, why don't you tell us a bit about the guest we've got this week and a bit about the subject matter? Okay, well, the author, she is the author of a book on Area 51, which will be of great interest to most Sitting Now uh, listeners. However, it is not that book I'm talking to her about. It is a book about Operation Paperclip, um, another subject that I imagine most of our listeners are at least familiar with. But uh, from what I could gather, there hasn't been a book written on the subject for a while. Um, I was having a discussion about the issue with someone I know and they didn't know anything at all about Operation Paperclip they'd never heard of it Um, it it of course was the uh, Allies efforts to bring Nazi scientists uh, in a variety of fields uh, over to the side of the Allies during the end of the Second World War Um, and he didn't know anything about it so I was looking for a book and I found this was going to be published in April and read it when it came out and it's very very detailed and uh, it's a really good book and so I thought, I know, I will see if I can talk to the author about it. And that's what's happening, which is a bit surprising. But you can trust me, Ken, it won't go too wrong. And you haven't actually mentioned who the author is yet? Yes, it is. Uh, that's because I'm struggling. Until I've spoken to her, I don't know how to pronounce her surname. It's either Jacobson or Jacobson. Um, so one or the other. I'm but, sure it's uh, probably Jacobson. Probably, but that is prob- that is also going to be the first question I'm going to ask. Because as a Monaghan... I've spent my entire life having my surname mangled, and I know that it breeds a deep feeling of resentment when people call me Mahonahan, Monogram, and uh, Monkey Man. So I'm not going to make that mistake. Cool. So uh, let's uh, let's get into that interview now, and we'll see you after the break.
Jacobson, author of Operation Paperclip. Uh, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Ken's done the uh, the only thing that worried me about the interview, as someone who's had their surname mangled uh, every time I've been introduced for the last 37 years, I wanted to know whether you're a Jacobson or a Jacobson, and you're a Jacobson. So, I'm so a that's, Jacobson. One, that's yeah. one way off my mind. Um, so, uh, would you mind giving us a quick uh, bio of your uh, career to date and uh, how you got to where you are? Yes, well, I am a, a journalist who writes about war, weapons, U.S. national security, and the secret programs that keep them secret. Um, I've reported for the Los Angeles Times magazine for a number of years, and now I'm working primarily on long-form books. So. I wrote Area 51 before Operation Paperclip. Then Operation Paperclip, and now I'm working on a new book about the Pentagon. Oh, a book about power. Uh, the book on Paperclip uh, only came out in April. Um, I managed to grab it uh, on pre-order from Amazon because I was trying. I was having a, a discussion with a friend of mine who is a bit of a military history uh, nut, and he'd never heard of Operation Paperclip. So I was trying to find a decent book that I could get for him um, to fill him in on the details. He didn't even know the overview. Wow. So, I know, yeah. It's, it's still, um, listeners to our show, I'm assuming will be quite familiar with uh, maybe not the, the level of detail you've gone to in the book, but they will know, you know, the outline of it. But it is um, it's a bit of an obscure subject in the mainstream media to some extent. You know, I find that as time passes, the very interesting programs become obscure. And I think that uh, it's fascinating from where I'm sitting, just as a, as a you know, young woman or middle-aged woman in America, looking back at the history of uh, national security in the United States, it really sort of begins after World War II. And every decade is just chock full of these you know, radical programs and radical shifts in government. And uh, to be able to look back at something and then, you know, with a fresh eye of today, it's interesting how their sort of programs run parallel of one another. Um, yeah, well, uh, it makes perfect sense in that context, as you've described it, that you would be um, uh, writing a book about the Pentagon, uh, because obviously that's where a lot of these sort of things will have originated over the years. Um, yes, the Sorry, carry on. Uh, I mean, the Joint Chiefs of Staff ran Operation Paperclip. And so it was a program that was at the very heart and center of U.S. power, military power, and really at the time, military intelligence, which was more powerful than any other intelligence agency in the United States at the time, because Paperclip began in 1945, and the CIA didn't come until, into existence until 1947. So the entire U.S. intelligence apparatus was really in its you know, birth at this time. And I think that's why Paperclip is so important, and it speaks volumes about where we are today in terms of, uh, you know, secret keeping. And interestingly, your own government sort of comes into play a little bit with the, 
with some of the uh, parallel programs of of keeping secrets. Oh, it's a well. Is that was something I was going to move on to actually? Uh, how paperclip you can see evolve because um, it, it's a very big story, and you can see how various. Uh, um, strands of uh, military intelligence and government policy and things develop f- from that sort of uh, quite a small period of time, but uh, extremely fraught and obviously, you know, that define the post-war era. Um, before we get into uh, talking about paperclip in depth, you said in the book that you're that you stumbled across um uh, paperclip as a result of researching Alfred Niemeyer, the test pilot uh, uh, in your Area 51 book. Um, what was it? I know it's a bit perverse to ask you mm-hmm. this when we're talking about a different book, but what was yeah. it that made you interested in writing about Area 51? Not at all. Well, I, I was writing about Area 51 and I was the first journalist to report the inside story of Area 51 from the point of view of 75 individuals who had actually lived and worked there. They worked for the CIA, they worked for the U.S. Air Force, they worked for the Atomic Energy Commission, they were spies, they were scientists, they were pilots, they were engineers. And for the first time ever, they went on record with a journalist, and that was me. Um, Since then, President Obama has actually been the first president to admit that Area 51 even exists. So at the time when I was reporting this book back in 2009, it was quite a big scoop, if you will. And there were so many different tangents of the Area 51 story that were fascinating. I couldn't write about all of them. But one story sort of stuck with me. And that was, you mentioned, Siegfried Knaemeyer. And he came up because he was a German scientist who worked on with two uh, Nazi aircraft designers called the Horton Brothers. And they designed what was called the flying wing. Uh, It looked kind of like a boomerang, and it was used during World War II by the Nazis. And if you look at the B-2 bomber, the U.S. B-2 bomber today, they look remarkably similar. And it's because, of course, we took that technology from the Nazis and made it our own. And when I was researching Siegfried Knaermeyer, what struck me was that during the war, he was so important to the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, that Hermann Göring, who was in charge of the Luftwaffe, made Siegfried Knaemeyer the head of all his technical developments. And they were such close friends and, and, and liked one another so much, or at least Göring liked Knaemeyer, that in these memos he would refer to him as my boy. And I found out that right after the war, Siegfried Knaemeyer came to the United States as part of this obscure obscure, at least it was obscure to me at the time, operation called Operation Paperclip. And I found out very quickly that when Siegfried Knaemeyer retired from the U.S. Air Force in the middle 1970s, he was given an award from the Department of Defense that was the highest award that could be given to a civilian. It's called the Distinguished Civilian Service Award. And I thought to myself, how on earth does a man an engineer, a pilot, Knaemeyer was all of those things, how do you go from being the most important person in the Luftwaffe to being one of the most important people in the Department of Defense? And that made me want to investigate Operation Paperclip. So at that point, uh, you, were still, you were still pretty much, would you say, completely in the dark of Paperclip? 
well, I, you know, I, I learned pretty quickly about it, and one of the, and I learned that it had been written about here and there, and there were some great journalists and historians who had pieced together some of the story when it became, when part of it became declassified in the 1980s, but. I wanted to bring something new to the story, and so I reached out. I wondered what happened to Knaemeyer's relatives. He came here in 1947 with seven of his children and his wife, and I began searching for Knaemeyer's in the vicinity where he lived in, in Ohio at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and I located one of the grandchildren who was a fellow about my age, really courageous fellow who agreed to speak with me. And one of the first things he said was, you know, most of my family members kind of believe in the idea, don't ever mention Siegfried, what he did during the war. But the grandson told me that, of course, in the age of Google and computers, we can very quickly find out what Siegfried Knaemeyer did in the war. If you look on Wikipedia, you'll find much of what I just told you. And But Dirk Knaemeyer, the grandson, uh, said something very interesting to me. He said that he would rather know the truth than hide from it. And I thought that was very courageous of him. And eventually, he ended up sharing boxes of his grandfather's papers that he had in his attic, including one's for example, a letter of recommendation that had been written on behalf of his grandfather by Albert Speer. And so part of what was really compelling to me in researching and writing this was, what do you do with that kind of legacy if that is your grandfather or your father, as I interviewed you know, many of the children of these high-ranking Nazis who became part of Paperclip? But also, I learned along the way, which utterly fascinating to me was how the U.S. government was complicit in giving these former Nazi scientists a new way of life and almost a new persona. Their white, their whitewashed past became very much part of the story. It's, uh, it must have been incredibly difficult if your grandfather or father was, say, uh, the head of uh, NASA or or awarded these uh, big uh, civilian awards to then turn around and say, well, we can't speak about it in the same breath as talking about, uh, you know, a dubious Nazi past. It's a real, it's, it must be a really strange paradox to live under. But um, you said you said that you the the relatives of uh, you said that a lot of the relatives of uh, the individuals who were interested in were very helpful. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, Paperclip was a huge program. There were 1,600 Nazi scientists who came to the United States as part of Paperclip. And that's just the number that I have based on documents at the National Archives. I would assume that that number is double or perhaps triple in reality. Um, so, of course, I couldn't write about everyone. So I focused on 21 of these scientists that I found most interesting and that I had the most access to, a number of whom were so close to the elite Nazi party. They worked hand, eight of them worked side by side at some point during the war with Hitler, Himmler, or Goring. And to interview the children of some of these was absolutely remarkable. I mean, that the scope of sort of truthfulness about what was really going on was remarkable. Some of the children were 
very open and honest about, you know, I don't know. This is what I was told. This is what father shared with me. Here are his papers. What did you learn? You know, all these kinds of questions. And others were, it's, you know, one, one person, individual, I mean, in, in particular, the son of Otto Ambrose. Otto Ambrose, we can go into him a little bit later, but I think mm. he was probably the most odious character of the, the of those I write about in my book, uh, convicted at Nuremberg of mass murder and slavery, um, set free by the Americans, given clemency and set free out of prison and then put back to work and worked for the U.S. Department of Energy. His son sort of earned the legacy of the father and the financial gain of the father and refused to talk to me, said to me, you know, this is a private matter. Um, so there was a, a huge, there were extremes in terms of the transparency that people were willing to, um, to offer me. Mm, what the, um, it, it is quite surprising quite breathtaking actually the transition some of the people in the book make from uh, sort of late 1945 uh, to the status they've achieved sort of in the 60s and 70s uh, you're not just talking about clemency in a lot of the cases you're, t you're talking about actual rewards uh, both in terms of status and financial which um, would be baffling to a lot of the people who are obviously on the the receiving end of uh, you know the wrong end of World War Two and the Nazis um, it's and that's a very the great, I think that's the great conundrum and drama of paperclip because you're looking back through this long lens of history. This program began 69 years ago in the, in the ruins of the Reich, literally. And as you're, this was certainly my experience reporting it and it's the way I wrote the book, which is learning like you know, in the moment, uh, how this is happening. I accessed a lot of the transcripts of the original, um, you know, queries and, and the interrogations between these scientists and their U.S. military handlers. And you can see that incredible drama, you know, the scientists revealing a bit, a, a bit more, wanting to make themselves valuable, knowing they might be getting a job with the Americans, but at the same time knowing, oh my goodness, I cannot say too much because look what's happening to my colleagues over there. So the real question that you can almost see back in time as you read these transcripts, uh, am, you know, the scientist almost thinking aloud, am I going to be hired or am I going to be hanged? which is presumably why there was quite a lot of uh, duplicity and uh, disguising uh, of themselves. Uh, but we'll come on to that a bit later. How did you go about tracking such, uh, I mean, you said to yourself, you've reduced the number to 21 or so key players, um, which seems very sensible. Uh, but even then, it's still a very, very complex affair. How did you, how did you go about tracking the, the really complicated chronologies mm -hmm. because obviously these people are interacting with each other, they're interacting with uh, different governments, they were moving backwards and forwards across countries. It, it's, it seems like a, an organizational nightmare to try and figure mm -hmm. out what these people were doing and when they were doing it. 
Or you could approach it as a great mystery that must be puzzled out. And that's always how I approach these things. And when the stakes are as high as they are, certainly that's how it felt about these Nazis. Because so many of them, I went into it going, wait a minute, was this guy guilty or wasn't he? Because the truth in some of the cases was not known. I believe in a number of cases, specifically Theodore Benzinger, who we can talk about, who, you know, was lauded as a great scientist and given a a very fabulous obituary in the New York Times when he died in 1999. I mean, I unveiled these documents that showed that he was a a, a close confidant of Himmler and that when a medical murder film was shown at the Reich Air Ministry during the war, I'm talking about the experiments at concentration camps where people were murdered in the name of medical science. Theodore Benziger was chosen, handpicked by Heinrich Himmler, Reichsführer SS, to introduce the film to his colleagues. You can't have a more sinister group. You can't have a more awful situation. And yet, that document was not available to anyone as far as I can tell, including the Department of Justice in 1980 when they investigated Theodore Benziger yet again while he was living in America, while he was working as a scientist to try and find out if in fact he had this, you know, deep, dark Nazi past, which he did. And so when when you ask me how I been about doing it, you know, you you have to begin sort of, you know, it's almost like throwing spaghetti at the refrigerator. You just <laughs> start with what you have and you follow leads. I, I learned so much from some of the CIA and FBI officers, uh, present and former, who I use as sources because I learned from them how they put together their stories. And it's interesting because being a journalist is very similar to that model. Yeah, it's... Um it's not just the, the the complexities obviously start you know the the basis of all the paperclip uh, and everything that came from it is in 1945 but um up until you, you said yourself you have managed to get a few freedom of information requests uh, you managed to get a few documents in advance of the date that they were supposed to be released um you're still yeah. waiting for some documents uh, i believe you've got a few uh, requests that you're still waiting on Oh my goodness. I mean, I'm, I mean, this, this may be a bad analogy, but there's a, there's a, the predator drone, which I'm sure you, you've, you're familiar with over there. It has these missiles on it, which I write about often, which are called fire and forget missiles. And, um, it's because they're so accurate that you just push, you know, the operators who I've interviewed who work on them, they just push the button and they literally fire and forget because they know the missile goes where it's supposed to go. Um, you have to almost take that attitude when you're filing freedom of information acts because you have to file you have to fire and forget you have to what i do is i try and cross examine the different agencies who might be the record holder of the of the individual i'm looking at mindful of the fact that um two situations stand in the way one uh files have been sp- purposefully hidden and two files have been mistakenly hidden and or mistakenly lost and so if i file a freedom of information act let's say on siegfried knemeyer across you know you don't just go to the fbi you go to fbi cia department of commerce believe it or not department of energy u.s air force army intelligence um etc etc and you request using multiple keywords 
And lo and behold, the results often come back in the most surprising form. Places that you wouldn't expect them to, they do. And places where you would have imagined, let's say the U.S. Air Force, there would be a lot there. That's where Knemeyer worked for 30 years. But um, those records were non-conclusive. It sounds like it wouldn't be asking much, asking for details of that period. But of course, um, as I've said, it's a really long story. And in uh, there are a few things that popped into my mind while, while I was uh, thinking about the chronology and the length of you know how long this story's been going on. Um, I found out that I.G. Farben, who who were a seemed to be a central uh, one of the central recipients of you know the, the commercial benefits of the nazi regime um and certainly uh, a lot of individuals involved in paperclip either worked for them or were associated with them in some way uh, ig farben i was surprised to learn that they were still trading on the german stock market in 2001 um, mm, you despite and- despite being liquidated in 1952 you know the farben story is just one of the spookier, more sinister aspects of it because it really speaks to big business and it speaks to um, corporations needing to keep, you know, corporations, of course, here in the United States are, are, are essentially people. They have many of the same rights. And the precedent for um, taking down a corporation like IG Farben and holding them responsible for the the Nazi war machine, as I believe they were, and and so many others, um, was not something that a lot of people wanted to see happen in 1945. And I mean American judges, and I mean British judges, and that that was the same for the judges' trial at Nuremberg. In other words, um, when you look at the world of defense contractors, uh, no one wants to have in the back of their mind, you know, Am I going to be put on trial one day? This is big business. And I think businesses want to keep that falsity that they are just simply uh, part of the business. They are not at all part of the politics or part of the, um, you know, the what, and in, in the case of IG Farben, they were always maintaining that they were not part of the Third Reich when in fact they absolutely were. I mean, the, the memos... There have been books written about how uh, the Reich couldn't really have gotten where it got with its weaponry had it not been for IG Farben. Oh, a synthetic rubber, synthetic oil, um, and a a huge number of synthetic products Mm -hmm. were devolved from Farben. So there's not really Mm -hmm. any doubt. I guess, I guess in nineteen, you know, in the late forties and early fifties, they could still rely on the confusion of the time to to try and obscure that. I did find it bizarre that it's a sort of like a zombie corporation, if you like, that that didn't really exist in any respect but was still making money uh, and i'm assuming that it just got absorbed into other you know other companies and uh you know became a subsidiary that still somehow existed without actually having a company behind it quite yes. bizarre um yes. i was you also know, on that on that note i'm going to share one little detail with you because we were speaking about you know the journalist on the hunt but um, you, you, one makes all these efforts and sort of just kind of forges along in the dark, so to speak, and then comes across a detail that makes it all worth it. And that was certainly the case with me uh, researching 
Dr. Otto Ambrose, who was a board member of IG Farben and one of IG Farben's most important scientists. I mentioned him earlier because he was convicted of mass murder and slavery, went to Nuremberg and was given clemency by the United States. However, this was the detail I found buried away at the National Archives inside of Otto Ambrose's file. I learned that he was given a 1 million Reichsmarks bonus. Think about that in 1942, I believe it was, by Hitler himself. And it was Albert Speer who wrote this document saying that um, Hitler was so proud of Otto Ambrose and I.G. Farben for their work in synthetic rubber because, of course, the Reich needed rubber. I mean, tanks need tires and – I mean, tanks need treads and aircraft need tires and the Reich needed rubber and they were running out. And so when Otto Ambrose invented synthetic rubber, it was a boom to the Reich and Hitler made that known. And uh, one of the most astonishing details to me was when Ambrose was convicted at Nuremberg, part of the penance was to take away all of his money. That went for all of the convicted Nazi war criminals. Whatever financial gain they had made during the war on the backs of, the, of you know those who had been killed and worked to death was taken from them. And yet in Otto Ambrose's case, when he was given clemency, his finances were fully restored to him. And it was one of the things I asked his son, because I know that when, Am- when that money was given back to Ambrose, I learned from my research in Germany that Ambrose bought a villa in Switzerland. And um, I asked the son, you know, what happened to that villa and if he inherited it. And that was one of the questions that prompted the son, uh, Dieter Ambrose is his name, to say to me that it was a private matter. Which you can draw an assumption from. I would draw a cynical assumption from that that statement uh, that that they're very much in possession of it. Yeah, I mean, and you could certainly ask, you know, I mean, the private matter to me was just so so astonishing. I mean, you really want to, you know, Otto Ambrose ran the Buna factory at Auschwitz, and you really want to say to him, you know, do all do the, do the 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 individuals from Auschwitz think this is a private matter? The yeah, uh, that and and that is uh, yeah, the conclusion of the book. You um, point out that there's a very good reason for not letting uh, the legacy of paperclip lie. Um, a, it's had so much of an impact on the modern era. And B, there's a very a very big um, audience of people who have, you know, generations of relatives who uh, did not fare uh, as well as the Nazi scientists did. Mm. I mean, it is important to reconcile that past. I think it's part of what um, what was what motivated me in writing the book. I mean, Warner Von Braun is a great example. You know, he is lauded in the United States as uh, the most important individual uh, scientist behind the moon program, hands down. And I've interviewed men on the moon, um, men from, you know, who went to the moon, who will tell you that same thing, you know, if it were not for Warner Von Braun. And they, 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 they absolutely have him up on a pedestal, and part of the reason why they do is because NASA and the U.S. Army worked so hard to make sure that Von Braun's complicity uh, was concealed. But gradually, this has been been creeping out, and of course, now made known also through my book and through other historians who shared their good work with me, that Von Braun had a hand. 
Kentucky Nordhausen slave labor factory, which produced the rockets for the Reich in the last year of the war. And there's a memo that another historian um, here in America named Michael Neufeld found uh, after, you know, all these decades, he recently found a document that showed that von Braun himself would go to the Buchenwald concentration camp and hand pick the slaves who would then go build his rockets in the underground factory, 30,000 of whom died. Yeah, I remember even know, knowing some of the details of paper as I as I did before I started reading, even I was surprised at the image of, uh, is it Kurt Debus and uh, Von Braun being in the, the, being in charge of the launch center at NASA at uh, Kennedy for, uh, for the moon landings. It's, it's such a bizarre, such, I mean, no one could have imagined a, a, a bizarre career uh, tangent like that going from, you know, Hitler's, one of Hitler's, chosen scientists to being involved in the moon landings it's it's just bizarre and and quite shameful in many respects and for von braun to be to manage to carry both of those uh, i mean it's not as if people weren't trying uh, there were a lot of people trying to expose at various points trying to expose uh, these scientists and paperclip for what they were um yes. Yes, you, you know right. you've got uh, I can't remember her name. Linda Hunt wrote a book uh, not that long ago in the early 90s. Uh, yes. There was public outcry in, in the early 50s. And yet in between, despite despite these issues coming up time and time again, nothing stopped. Um, I was quite surprised to learn that von, Werner Braun, von Braun had um, his novel uh, published, but it got, got turned into a really popular series of uh, science fiction um, TV shows. Well, you know, I think part of what so interests me in in the United States, whether it's today or yesterday or 30 years ago, is you see how people will believe what they are told by their government. Not everyone, but certainly the majority. And that is a bit of a double-edged sword because you, you, one doesn't want to err on the side of conspiracy theory, or at least I, you know, I, I would advise against it, but uh, only because it's almost, it's just as polemic as believing everything that you're told. But when you lack the ability to examine the facts for yourself, as is the the primary story of Operation Paperclip, then you have to wonder, well, how was anyone really supposed to know? I mean, the document that Warner Von Braun's case file and every other scientist with Paperclip, their case file too, was classified until Linda Hunt, that intrepid reporter from CNN, worked, you know, tirelessly in the 1980s to force the U.S. Army to declassify these files. Had it not been for her initial work, who knows if they would have, you know, who knows who would have come along and gotten that bright idea. Mm. And yet uh, you still have uh, another thing that slightly depressed me. Uh, you still have the Alberta Strughold Prize for, uh, for the Space uh, Medicine Association of America. Uh, that's still awarded on a yearly basis. And Alberta Strughold uh, was uh, one of the key figures you followed through the book and was using data acquired in concentration camps and medical uh, murder experiments. 
Absolutely. And he's, his, he's still considered by many the father of space medicine in America. Um, but as I write Strughold's story in the book, I also write the story of his American, you know, almost his foil. Uh, and that was Colonel Harry Armstrong, later General Armstrong, who was the second Surgeon General of the U.S. Air Force, who knew Strughold before the war, before he became a Nazi. They almost had parallel careers, interested in the same things, which was how to allow for pilots' physiology to, you know, move with the trajectory that science was moving on. In other words, as the airplanes were going faster and higher, how are you going to have pilots be able to perform in these kind of conditions? And this required intense um, work, doctor's work, physiologist's work. And of course, the Americans were doing it on guinea pigs and rabbits and mice, and the Nazis were doing it on humans. And so the Nazis' science moved along much faster than the Americans. And after the war, I mean, weeks after the surrender documents were signed, there was Colonel Harry Armstrong of the U.S. Air Force in Berlin, hunting down Strughold and all of his colleagues, certainly not to, you know, investigate them into their medical murder experiments, but rather to hire them for the U.S. Army, then called the Army Air Forces. And that's exactly what they did. And they did it with an absolute blind eye. In other words, you know, knowledge of these, of what went on in the concentration camps was of no matter to someone like Armstrong. What was important was that the coming war with the Soviets was clearly on the horizon and we needed this information because we needed to make our pilots go higher and faster and further. Do you think that it's a, a chicken and egg uh, situation? Do you think that the uh, the allies uh, looking after their own interests even before the end of the war precipitated uh, that kind of uh, breakup or do you think that that was inevitable? Um, because uh, it seems to me that all of the countries involved knew what the other parties were doing and they were, you know, you have incidents where um, people going to the Russians and then coming back and then uh, people were going off to different zones of occupation to escape other allies. Um, do you think that was a, a, do you think that contributed to the, the, the build up of the Cold War? Do you think that was mm -hmm. inevitable? Mm -hmm. I mean, I certainly hoped to raise that question in my book and by telling you the specifics of the story and taking you through the drama of what these scientists were doing during the war and then how it unfolded and who knew what when and kind of try to present it to you as it was happening um, and see the dilemmas that the different pl players faced, I would hope that the readers would draw their own conclusions. Um, personally, uh, and I perhaps hinted this in, in my prologue and certainly in my epilogue, I think that... Um, on balance, there's always going to be another war in the eyes of the military that that one must accept or perhaps be naive. Um, but do you have to make these great moral compromises where really, really bad guys uh, become part of the winning team? My conclusion would be no. 
Yeah, the uh, you you mentioned a, f- a few um, occasions in the book where it seemed very much as if uh, morals and ethics were f- forgotten. Um, I'm not talking about in the large scale bureaucracy, but on a personal level. Um, one thing that amused me to some <laughs> to some degree was uh, you mentioned an anecdote where British and German scientists, uh, V2 scientists, were working together. And uh, someone came in and found them singing, uh, we'll march on England together. Um, But there's numerous incidents in the book where it seems like people are aware of uh, someone's history and have ignored it uh, on the basis that they appreciate what they've done science, you know, for science, um, which is very pragmatic. But obviously that speaks about the moral and ethical bankruptcy of paperclip as a whole. Absolutely. And it always comes down to the individuals. Um, and I tried to write that in the book to show, you know, these specific U.S. generals who are in the positions or in colonels in some cases to make the decisions. The few people at the very beginning of the program that knew the facts that, you know, we're sitting there with this information, Kurt Debus, for example. Well, he was a Nazi. He wore the SS uniform to work, not required. He turned over his boss for making an anti-Hitler remark. The boss was taken in by the Gestapo and sent to prison. I mean, these are like major things that cannot be overlooked and falling into the category of innocent German scientists just trying to feed his family. This is hardcore Nazi ideology at work on the part of Kurt Debus, by example. And, you you know, I show his handler, in this case, saying to his handler in Germany, the American officer over there interviewing him, getting this information, and writing to the handler in the Pentagon saying, this guy, Kurt Debus, is an ardent Nazi. He was vicious, and we cannot bring him to the United States. And also saying in a, in a document, if we do, it could be trouble for us, you know, if this were to be revealed. And somebody else on the American end saying, let me look into it. And then a couple of weeks later, the memos come back and it says, he's too important, get him here. And then you see that information buried and it gets stamped, classified, and somebody like myself comes along it, you know, 68 years later, um, a 70-page dossier that says, oh my God, this was one of those moments where history turned for this individual. Kurt Debus went from being, you know, possibly prosecuted, or not possibly, definitely prosecuted, it was illegal to be a member of the SS, um, to on his way to fame and fortune in the United States. And Kurt Debus, like Stroghold, has an award in his name that is given out every year by the National Space Association. And when I interviewed the present uh, president of the Space Association, I said, how on earth can you give this award out, knowing, as we do now, his past? And I read to the president of the, of the, the award giver the, you know, the documents. I read to him from the file what Davis's handler said about him being a vicious Nazi. And his answer was, it's a simple fact. Kurt Davis is an honored American, period. And he is, of course, right. Um, however, I suppose the question you're looking to answer is, <laughs> should he be? Absolutely. Uh, or, well, can't we 
undo his position as an honored American, you know, now that we know. But, and, 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 you know, then it even gets more specific in that situation, not to name names, but to name names. That with that individual, I said, but wait a minute, what do you say when a journalist like myself asks you this question? How can you, how can you just purport this? And he said, no one's ever asked me the question. Which is, uh, which is, how can you be doing this? You know, in other words, there's sort of a, I think when you when you when you're a journalist as I am, and you get into the specificity of these, of these, you know, fascinating stories, and as you said, you were shocked. You know, you didn't even know about paperclip. You kind of go around full circle, and then you get right down to the heart of the matter with someone who's responsible for giving out this award every year, um, which is a falsity, and you say, you know. How come this isn't known? And the answer is, no one really cares. And that's the that's its own conundrum. It's a, it's difficult because uh, the space race and landing on the moon obviously are held up by many as a a shining example of what humanity can achieve. And I would fully back that, but it does create. Um, uh, <laughs> it it creates a weird interference. When you think that the the data, a lot of the data that's central to it, a lot of the people that were central to it, they weren't just. Uh, when you think about when when paperclip is discussed, people go, "Oh, you know, they were scientists, and it makes them sound harmless and like they they were just interested in the technology." But of course, people like Kurt Blom uh, were was um, integral to. He knew about mass sterilization programs. Mm-hmm. And mass he murder programs. He helped authorize the mass sterilization programs, and later became a paperclip. Absolutely. And there was a frightening, uh, quite eerie, um, a guy. I can't remember his first name, but there was a guy called Schmitz, and it was discovered that he had a, a bizarre and really unpleasant Auschwitz scrapbook, which documented uh, Auschwitz, the village, as it was slowly converted, and he had photographs of the different stages, um, which began mm-hmm. sort of during the war and, and he was found with this this book that he was quite obviously terrified to be discovered with it but um also you know bizarrely proud of his involvement in the mm-hmm. creation of auschwitz yes um, there's because, another another ig farben executive for you yeah and this is and this is why i said you know farben uh, and as you make such a big deal of saying that that farben was you know central to a lot of this um of course the 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 other side of um, of these the data and these people being used is that they were giving. It seems like they were busy giving a helping hand to people who weren't contributing. There's a few examples in the book of people being brought into America for paperclip, and it turns out they were not that useful. Uh, people who managed food, um, you know, food in concentration camps, and managed things that. America would Mm -hmm. be able to take care of its own purchasing and fairly menial tasks. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think what that speaks to, I mean, those people were all under Von Braun. And I think what's really spooky, and because, you know, Von Braun came here with General Dornberger, who was one of the most odious characters of the war. Um, He was actually part of Paperclip. And then the British said, well, can we borrow Dornberger a little bit? We need some expertise from him. And we said, yes, and we gave him to you. And then you said, no way, we are trying. (laughs) 
shooting this guy and you sent him off to a, a prison camp and eventually he was released with the warning from the British this guy is sneaky we've been monitoring him he's stirring things up he's a liar he's a Nazi you know watch out and we took him in anyways and he worked for the US Air Force and then he went on to be a CEO of a defense contractor a, a vice president of a defense contracting company so Dornberger and Von Braun to answer your question about you know the cooks coming over you could you can tell from these documents I looked at at length their original documents in with their interrogators in 1945 they had cooked up a story among the 100 200 perhaps 300 of them who were being held uh, in the Bavarian Alps for for questioning and Dornberger and von Braun, it seems, were kind of coaching all these individuals about what they were going to say, and specifically coaching them not to say anything about the slave labor facility at Nordhausen that they were all involved in. And the, my read on that person who was simply a cook coming over here is that he, it was a quid pro quo. He probably was one of the ones that said, you know, I need to come along, otherwise I might be one of the ones that gives the Americans the information they're looking for about that slave labor facility. Yeah, that would make sense if you were if you were threatened with prosecution. Uh, I, and at the time, of course, the death sentences weren't off the table for uh, ardent Nazis. Then you would use any connections you had, and that would just create a web of of people pulling each other in. So uh, that maybe accounts for quite the large number of people that got taken over to America for paperclip. Yes, there was just you can just see a big web of deceit and. Um, lies and malfeasance and then out of this springs forth springs forth all this you know incredible american science and that is the great puzzle of paperclip which is was it worth it was what these individuals gave the united states worth the moral compromise could someone else have helped out could our own scientists have helped out and should one ever on balance, uh, allow a past crime to be cancelled out by some kind of a, you know, benefit to either national security or civilian science. Yeah, the um, the that's that uh, spiraling out of control, the headless monster, as he described it. Um, that uh, is also not doesn't just apply to um, the the space race and the people brought in. But uh, it seems like Paperclip was a significant step in uh, the cr not the creation of the military industrial complex, because from what I've read, it seems like that was a, an almost an organic uh, effect of the war. But it certainly seems to have cemented um, the, the, the frightening aspects of the military indu industrial complex. And it seems to also have been um, the point at which because it wasn't just country v country it was uh, departments v departments mm. different, different parts of the US government deceiving each other and um and it also led on in later years to things like um not only different programs like artichoke mk ultra uh, bluebird mm -hmm. but also it seems to have been a significant factor in in the creation of things like the CIA and the NSA and that seems to have started with uh, the combined intelligence objective subcommittee do you want to yes. uh, tell us a bit about that? Well, in researching 
where this intelligence was coming from that, you know, the Soviets were preparing for war, and this is, you know, in the moments after World War II, not years later, I came across documents that pointed to this Joint Intelligence Committee, which I learned from a couple historians uh, who write for the, CIA, for the CIA monographs. I learned from them that the Joint Intelligence Committee is actually one of the most obscure and least known and little studied U.S. intelligence in the history of America. U.S. intelligence agency. It was created specifically at the, um, you know, the last years of the war to provide intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and that is the group that, you know, in the months after the war, said, "We must begin to prepare for war with the Soviets." The Joint Intelligence Committee reports talked about how the Soviets were beaten down after the war, and they were they're, they're sort of their weaponry was decimated, but. They were going to begin building up quickly, and soon they would be prepared for total war with the United States. That's that was a, that's a direct quote. And not only that, it was going to be what was called ABC warfare, atomic, biological, and chemical. And they set a date for it. They said the Joint Chiefs, the Joint Intelligence Committee told the Joint Chiefs of Staff in this obscure memo, be prepared for war with the Soviets in 1952. And that's why I concentrate most of my book on that really tenuous time period between the last months of the war and 1952, when it appears that the Joint Chiefs of Staff believed exactly that, and they made all decisions based on that. And so if Hitler's biological weapons maker, Dr. Kurt Blom, was available having been acquitted at Nuremberg, even though he was in Hitler's inner circle, even though he wore the Golden Party badge, even though he was participating in what was called Sonderby handling of tubercular poles, that means special treatment, and we all, I think, know what that means. Uh, Dr. Kurt Blum knew about biological weapons, and America needed him, because if we didn't have him, the Russians will. And keep in mind that memo hanging over everyone's head like the sword of Damascus was, you know, total war with the Soviets in 1952. And so you see this incredible position that the Joint Chiefs of Staff are in where they're saying, we can't not get these Nazi scientists because if we don't, the Soviets will. It's not surprising, really, though, is it, given that uh, on occasion they were prone to putting the right people in to exactly espouse that point of view. Um, having read other books around the, the start of the Cold War, um, I can't give you names because that's a whole different interview. But, um, you know, they were finding people who were vehement, uh, ardent uh, anti-communists, um, uh, more, more importantly than anything else in their career, and those are the people who are making the decisions about uh, what they were, what the what the Russians were likely to be doing, and yes. their viewpoint dictated. I mean, because quite often they were uh, massively exaggerating what the Russians were actually doing. But the Russians found out about this, you know, these lies, and realised uh, not incorrectly what was happening and and where they were being positioned. Yes, and they're they're that's your chicken and egg right there because mm. now. The Russians are saying, well, look what the Americans think we're doing, believe we're doing, and whether or not we're doing it. We don't, you know, some, mind you, 70 years later, some of this information is still uh, subject of debate. Um, 
who who had what, who knew what. But either way, it's creating that chicken and egg. Well, if they're doing it, we have to do it. And mm-hmm. so you see that incredible buildup, an arms race, not just in missiles, but in chemical weapons and biological weapons. And that brings us to where we are today, which is why I'm so excited about my new book that talks about the Pentagon. Um, the... It seems like, uh, yeah, well, uh, that's, uh, I've every intention of reading Area 51 now that I've read um, Paperclip because that sort of thing fascinates me. Um, it seems like the certainly a, uh, one of the major turning points because Paperclip did set out with essentially um, a defensive and a beneficial um, state of mind. But it seems like the Joint Intelligence Operating Agency was the point where... Uh, it became more important to get the scientists and get the people that they wanted um, because up until that point there was still a vetting process visas were being denied and a lot of that seems to be down to a guy who you talked about called Samuel Klaus mm. um, do you want to tell us about Samuel Klaus and his uh, his unfair removal by the, the government Yes. I mean, Klaus, it's interesting that we were just talking about that sort of anti-communism because one of the great, great problems for anyone working in the United States government in the 40s, uh, in the late 40s, who was anti-paperclip was that they would be perceived as pro-communist. And that was not only a uh, situation that, that was a career ender, but it was potentially a life, you know, freedom, uh, liberty ender. I mean, people were being put in jail. And so Samuel Klaus, who was a one of the sort of only heroes, if you will, in the book, meaning heroes of truth, you know, he, he did not believe that these German scientists should be coming to the United States without a much more transparent vetting process. He believed the majority of them were Nazis, which they were. He had access to information that certainly indicated that, although he didn't have all the access, but he knew, had enough to know that this was a really uh, a great moral compromise and a bad idea. And he really put pressure on uh, the Pentagon saying, I'm the guy in the State Department that's in charge of granting visas, and I'm not going to do it without a much more thorough uh, review of who these people are. And um, we need, you know, he suggested the Things like multiple sources, multiple character witnesses, and all kinds of things. And he was just immediately shut down. And the more he pushed, the more pushed back he received. And ultimately, he was just removed from the job. And, and there are some memos that I found uh, that had been declassified where you really see this sort of brutal taking to task of Samuel Klaus saying, This guy's standing in our way, get rid of him. I mean, it's that, the language is that strong. Yeah, because he was, after all, just just doing his job uh, and, you know, enforcing uh, U.S. law. So uh, they just did they did just find a way of ousting him. Uh, he was moved to a, a non-related department in the end, wasn't he? He was. And one of the, you know, it was just amazing the little details about how, how the scientists actually got here. For example, they sort of came over under military transport with, you know, sometimes in airplanes with the windows blacked out so that they could be brought over on some kind of special provision having to do with national security and, you know, extrajudicial, we would call it today. But then once they were here, they would begin living here. And then uh, they would, the State Department, once they got rid of Klaus, came up with a little go around whereby they would take the scientists 
out of America, if it, if it was on the East Coast, this would be just above Niagara Falls. They would go up into Canada with an escort and then enter back into the United States legally with a visa that had been provided for, to them by the State Department because they had to have a, a legitimate entry. And that began slowly at at first, and ultimately, that's the way the majority of the 1,600 paperclips were given citizenship. Yeah, it's very strange that that mechanism of the people in the north going coming back in via Canada and people in the south coming back in via yes. it, yeah, Mexico. It's, it's, they would they would go down to Mexico and come up that way. Really strange. I, I found that really bizarre that they would go to those lengths when you would think that they could. I mean, if if they were happy to remove people from the job and rubber stamp and and it, I mean the whole the whole basis of paperclip is that they were using a paperclip on on uh, the documents applying to these various Nazis to to denote who should and shouldn't be allowed into the program. So That's right, this- and, e- and even more importantly, as I told you about Debus, you know, every now and then you had a guy in Germany, a, a U.S. handler in Germany, who would kind of make waves or cause trouble or really do their job and say, wait a minute, we can't bring somebody who is an SS member into the United States and and to go around that, a little system was developed whereby a paperclip would be put on a guy like Davis's file so you would know not to give it to the to the the handler who might raise questions. You would give it to the guy that you had working in that office who would rubber stamp it. So um, the uh, so we've got got to the point where the US government is uh, essentially has admitted to itself that what it is doing is illegal but it has enabled it in one way or another um, the uh, that's uh, obviously you've got the rewards for that you've got the space program you've got all the various um, technologies that came from it um, the fallout did start quite early though the public uh, was uh, informed as early as the sort of early 50s um, but despite repeated attempts by various people, Linda Hunt, um, various scientists in America, there was a huge outcry. Um, it is, uh, as we've discussed, it is, um, it's still not hugely mainstream knowledge. And a lot of the people involved uh, have gone on, went on to have very successful careers. Um, do you think there was some element of that uh, that was an, uh, an anti-Semitic kind of a feeling on behalf of the general public? obviously that was uh, a fairly common thing it seems like um there was to some extent there was a proportion of people who who weren't that anti what the nazis had achieved and, and what their goals were and do you think that maybe was what stopped the information being received the way i would assume it would be i don't know i didn't pursue that line of thinking because it's so subjective what i did look at is the best example I could come up with, which is why the program really didn't need to happen. You know, one of the great um, excuses is that these German scientists just needed to put food on the table for their families. They were not Nazi ideologues. They didn't even like Hitler. You know, that, that's sort of the falling into the category of excuse making. But really, that's a poor excuse. And the best example is, of course, Albert Einstein, um, a famous and lauded science in Germany. But the minute the Nazi party took over in 1933, Einstein began preparing for his departure, which happened very quickly. And he came to America 
And he was always against paperclip. And he knew about it in its earliest stages, just very lightly. He didn't know the specifics. But he appealed to President Truman many times. And what he said was that any scientist who stayed in Nazi Germany after 1933 and was willing to work for the Third Reich had to have known about what they stood for. That was public information. And it was very clear ideology. And if you were going to pursue science for that end, for those means, then you were part of the Nazi ideology, which he said was a rab and a rab mob of Nazi militia. And so his position was any scientist who worked for the Third Reich was one of Hitler's scientists and was not fit to be an American. And after all the years of research and reporting that I did and the thousands and thousands of pages of documents and reading between the lines and studying the dossiers and interviewing the family members. I agree with Albert Einstein. Uh, and, and I do too. Um, however, uh, it's uh, been so thoroughly integrated into where we are now that it's uh, almost a moot point, but the information should definitely out. And of course, that's what you've uh, no doubt spent a huge amount of time doing. Uh, and written a 400-page book that I would recommend very highly. Um, I hear you've got another interview to get off to now. Uh, you Presumably, as the book only came out in April, you, you're in the middle of promoting and touring and doing all kinds of publicity for it. It's, it's amazing that it's been so well-received for, for an old, dusty subject, but I think it speaks a lot um, about that people really do want to know the truth about things, particularly when such huge moral questions are involved. And... When you have such a powerful military as we do, you want to make sure that you know what happened in the past so you can evaluate what's perhaps going on today. Well, I have, uh, as I said, I have every intention of reading Area 51 next, and I very much look forward to reading about the Pentagon. And with any luck, if you're available, we will um, get you for one of those topics. But in the meantime, I'd like to thank you very much for uh, giving us an hour of your time, and uh, hopefully your voice will hold up for the next interview that you're going on to. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks very much, Ms. Jacobson. Thanks.
Hi, and welcome to a segment that is also normally Kim's, but has been taken over by a more classy individual. None of the usual crap noise in the background that you'd normally hear, just pure beauty. Coming up on this episode, we have Rom Draculas with Mokabukna. Why are the best songs always unpronounceable? Uh, Ivan Kang with Pure Nothing and Miasma and the Carousel of Headless Horses with Peacock the Heretic.
I think that's probably the best a tad dank SoundCloud specimen straight MySpace heroes I've ever heard there, Kim. I think, yeah, that, I think the selections were great, the uh the cuts were choice and the uh and the music was a resounding success. Um just much like the interview. Ah, good. You did tag on. You did tag on my part at the end. Uh, yes. Well, did you enjoy role reversing and getting to play people your uh, curious brand of musical taste? I did. It's good. I mean, I get to do it on our other show behind closed doors uh, often, but it's quite nice having full control. Um, so I can see the appeal now of a tad dank. It's uh, it's, it's it's very <laughs> it's monopolistic at best, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's uh, I felt very uh, in, in command. It was good, but um, yeah, it took so, you six years, six years of listening to it, uh, and one episode of actually making it to feel it, to feel its worth. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how to react to that. I think that's probably a compliment, but I, I'm not sure, so I'm going to skip over it. And are you happy that I haven't sullied the name of sitting now and all you've worked for? Well, that's to be seen. We'll see how the re- listeners respond first, but uh, um, I think we can safely as you um, say that you did a decent job. You know, they'll be chomping at the bit. They're always giving us feedback. They're, you can't stop them. I should probably address a couple of issues because we've had a few, as always, we seem to address it. We seem to uh, attract emailers rather than commenters, it seems, on uh, on our show. Um, not that anything can be commented on anyway on the website at the moment. We've got a glitch. We had a big server crash so recently, when we <laughs> annoyingly, when we published a Crispin Glover interview. And um, uh, so ever since that crash, we've never been able to... We haven't been able to have any comments on the site, which we're working on. We're going to get that sorted. But um, yeah, so stop, so, stop blaming me for that now, have you? It's probably your fault because it <laughs> also seemed to happen when you deleted a load of comments or spam <laughs> comments. But I'm sure it's your fault somehow. But um, anyway, we have had some communiques from our listeners who seem to be confused because they've come in. They're obviously newer listeners that don't understand why we've suddenly started doing interviews. It's because it's a different show. This isn't Coincidence Control Network, it's sitting now radio, which is a bit confusing because we haven't done this one properly for like years, so I can sort of see the reason they're a bit confused. But uh, no, we haven't got rid of Josh and uh, Joe. This is a completely different show where we interview people that we want to interview, and uh, it's kind of the flagship show in many ways, would you not say? It was the original and best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah we're, yeah, we're sort of doing this on a semi-regular basis again now, just because We've kind of uh, got the itch again, and we're scratching away. But uh, yeah, okay. What, um, what a wonderful metaphor! Thanks yeah, so much for that. <laughs> so, if you're listening to the show via Disinfo or any of the other sites that kind of repost it for us kindly, um, you can find 46 other episodes of this show, including interviews with Douglas Rushkoff. Uh, who else do we have? Ivan Stang from Church of Subgenius. We've got Isaac Bonwitz, the late Isaac Bonwitz, um, uh, who's a member of the Church of Satan, the Druid. We've we've had all sorts of cool people. We've had uh, Brad Carter from the Phone Losers of America, big fan of his. Um, we've had God, loads. It's, uh, Ivan Stang, John John Ronson. Yeah, John Ronson, uh, Richard Metzger from Trace Bruins. Yep, yeah, Trace Bruins from Mr. Bungle and Secret Cheese Three. Um, countless, countless episodes with countless cool people. So, you know, go back to sittingnow.co.uk, click on podcasts, and then if you look at if you click on Sitting Now Radio, you'll you you can uh, leaf through our our archive of shows because we we have quite a lot of them, and I think they're pretty good. If I do say so myself, we've... we're in spitting distance of number fifty now as well. I know it's crazy, isn't it? It's another number fifty. We also, of course, you know, if, uh, if you've only just heard us for the first time, you can hear us every week ish 
on uh, our other show, Coincidence Control Network. Um, latest episode of that just went up um, the other day. And you can also hear, if you like weird avant-garde music, Kim and I do a mu- music show called Behind Closed Doors, and you used to do another music show. Well, no, sorry, you do do another music show as well, which is you on your own, a tad dank. Um, but yeah, so, you know, if you want to email us any ideas for guests, you can email me at ken at sittingnow.co.uk. Kim, how can they get in contact with you? Uh, we're still trying to establish that. It's best to contact you. Yeah. Kim, you get a much more civilised response from you. Kim hasn't figured out how to turn Morse code into email yet, so once he does, <laughs> then we'll, uh, we'll let you know. But anyway, uh, yeah, we'll be back pretty shortly, actually, because we've already, I've, like I said in a previous show, I've already started booking other guests, so um, there should be one in a couple of weeks. So see you then.